Well, good morning, Gateway family. My heart is already full after hearing the kids sing of the holiness of God, isn't it yours? What a great morning so far. I hope you realize all the pictures you saw on the screen were pictures our kids, first through sixth graders, drew of their imagination of what heaven might be like. And I loved how they were taking the truth of Scripture and trying to visualize what it would be like, and yet recognizing our imaginations fall so short of the glory of what it's going to be when we see our Lord face to face. So I, hope, I hope you'll find Ephesians chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app. You should find that when I ask you, have you ever been asked to do something that you know you could not do on your own? Have you ever been asked to do something you know you could not do on your own? Perhaps go back to childhood. Did your parents ever ask you to do a chore for the first time? And you protested and went, there is absolutely no way I know how to load the dishes, cut the grass, do the laundry, whatever it is. And you said, I can't do it. And your parents said, I know, but be willing and I'll help you do it. Perhaps it was as an athlete. If you were athletic and your coach asked you, or maybe I should have said, yelled at you that you had to do something. As the coach yelled at you to do something, you protested going, I can't do it. I can't run that fast. I can't go that far. I can't do that. And his response was, but you have to try and I'll help you. Perhaps it was even at work. Your boss gave you a project. He thought, whoa, well, this is far beyond anything I know how to do. I can't do it. And the boss goes, I know, but I'm going to teach you how to do it. In life, we've come face to face with things we've been asked to do that we know we could not do without help. Now think about our study of Ephesians as we've been working through this letter to the people in Ephesus and to us. We've been told over and over commands of how we're to live, commands to do with our speech, our attitudes, our actions, even, even sex is all covered in these commands we've seen. And the more we look at these commands, we realize I cannot obey these commands on my own. The more we look at these commands, the more we realize we fall short. And we come to a text like last week where we were told to examine our lives, to look closely how we walk, to see are we obeying, are we using our time well, are we submitting to the will of God. And my hunch is that none of us went away from that text going, man, I've got it. I'm doing great in my use of time. I'm doing great in my obedience. I'm doing great in my submission to the will of God. These commands keep showing us how far short we fall from God's standards. Thankfully, those, though, for those of us who know God, God doesn't leave us where we are. In his kindness, he's showing us where we're falling short of his standards, where we're not walking worthy. And he pursues us and he convicts us and he shows us all of these things because he wants to help us find the strength to change. So this morning I want us to ask a question, and that is, where do we find the strength to live out who we are in Christ? Where do we find the strength to live out who we are in Christ? We've seen so many commands that deal with putting off sins and putting on righteousness. How in the world can any of us have any hope to be obedient to the Lord in any of these commands? Well, our text today, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, is going to answer that question. It's a verse that's been called the key to understanding all of Ephesians. And I would argue Ephesians 5.18 this morning is perhaps one of the most important verses in the second half of the book. The first half of the book, Ephesians 1-3, through was my identity in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is how do I live because of it. And I believe this verse today is the key to helping us understand how in the world we find strength to do all that's been laid out for us already in Ephesians 4 and 5 and what's still to come in the rest of 5 and 6. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, I want you to look for the answer to that question. What is the hope? Where is there strength for us to be able to obey the commands of God? So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Just one verse this morning, so you won't stand long, but there's a lot of truth in this one verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning 
that your word would come alive for us, that the Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes to the truth of your word, that we would better understand today who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. So Holy Spirit, come fill us this day. Open our eyes to the truth of the word of God that we might be transformed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, where do we find the strength to live out who we are in Christ? I want you to see from this one verse this morning, here's the answer. The strength to live out our identity in Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. The strength to live out our identity in Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. The only hope for us to grow in godliness is the Holy Spirit. The only hope for you and I to put off the sins that so easily entangles is the Holy Spirit. The only hope for us to put on Christ's likeness and speech that builds up and hearts that want to serve others is the Holy Spirit. Our only hope and the only strength we have comes from the Holy Spirit. So to help us understand, I want us to look at three questions this morning. First of all, let's review what is our identity? Because ultimately we're being called to live out an identity that we've been given. So what is our identity? Second of all, who is this Holy Spirit who helps us? important for us to understand. And third, perhaps the more practical, how does the Holy Spirit help us? How does he give us strength? So what is our identity? Who is the Holy Spirit who helps us? And how does he help us? Now, some of you may be pausing going, wait, Grady, that's only the second half of the verse. There's an alcohol part there. What about the alcohol part? Okay, we'll talk about the alcohol part. Some of you are getting excited. Some of you are probably nervous at the thought of the Baptist church talking about alcohol here. Look back at verse 18, because it's important for today's message. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Any questions? It's a pretty clear and simple put-off command here. For a believer, it is a sin to get drunk. What is it to be drunk? To be drunk means a person's thinking has been clouded, their behavior has changed because of overconsumption of alcohol. Basically, being drunk is losing control mentally and losing control in your behavior. Friends, everywhere in Scripture, drunkenness is presented is always in a sinful, not pleasant way, in 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 a dangerous way. We're told not to be drunk with wine. Now, let me clarify, that doesn't mean that we can get drunk with other substances. Why does Paul say just wine here? Well, for clarification, at the time, distillation had not been invented yet. Alcohol only happens because of naturally fermented drinks. So there wasn't a way to make hard liquor in other ways at the time. So Paul was addressing a problem in the church and a problem in the culture of people getting drunk because of overconsumption with wine. So his point is, for all of us, it doesn't matter what the substance is. Do not let anything else control you. Lose control of your mind. Lose control of your body because of it. And to do so is a sin. So that's all true, friends, but that's not the main point of the verse. Perhaps you heard it taught, only that part of the verse without the other. Perhaps that's been taught as the main point of the verse, but that's not the main point of the verse. Why do I say it's not the main point? Think about the pattern of Ephesians. There's a put-off command and a put-on command, and they're always related. You'll see a pattern. So, for example, in chapter 4, we saw that we're to put off, we're to stop lying, but that's not sufficient to stop lying. We're supposed to put on Christ's likeness, and that is truth-telling. We saw in chapter 4, we're to put off, we're to stop stealing, but it's not holiness just to stop stealing. We have to go to the next step, and we put on hard work to be generous to others. We saw in chapter 4 that we're to put off, we're to stop corrupting speech, but it's not enough to consider holiness just not having corrupting speech. We must put on, we must pursue speech that builds up. All throughout Ephesians, there's this parallel in the put-off, put-on being related. If the focus of this verse was on alcohol, you would expect it to say something like this. Do not get drunk with wine, but have self-control. Or do not get drunk with wine, but pursue clear thinking. But that's not what happens. Paul does a a contrast here. Instead of doing the typical, put off this behavior, now put on the opposite virtue. He does something a little bit different with this verse. Because he's making a contrast to teach us something. Everything he says about alcohol is true. Yes, it is a sin to get drunk. 
Yes, we should not get to a point of losing our faculties, our mind, or control of our bodies. That's true. There's nothing not true about that, but that's not his main idea. There's something bigger than just, if I don't get drunk, I'm walking with the Lord. He's trying to teach us something even more important than not getting drunk. And so he's making a contrast for us. Two contrasts here I think he's trying to make. First of all, an issue of control. What or who controls us? If you think about a person who's drunk, they're being controlled, in a sense, by another substance. Something is taking control of their mind and their body, and people who are so shy all of a sudden become blabbermouths, and people who are so timid become really crazy and goofy because something else is controlling them. And Paul's saying, no, no, don't be controlled by anything else, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and it'll be obvious. He's giving us a contrast of control. But I think even more than that, I think he's making a contrast of where do we go for help? Because if you think about it, people don't get drunk for drunk's sake. They get drunk because they're trying to find help for something. The people who get drunk are turning to alcohol and the abuse of alcohol because they're struggling with something. They're trying to forget something that's painful to them. They're trying to be happy because they're feeling sad. They're trying to relax because they don't know how to relax. They're trying to loosen up so they can be seen as cool. In Ephesus, they were even trying to get help from the gods, and so they would get drunk and do all sorts of crazy things in states of drunkenness to try to please the false gods. They worship. People get drunk because they're looking for help. There's, just some, there's something in their lives. And Paul is telling us there's some, there is a help, but it's not an alcohol. There's a help that's even that's more important than that. And I think he's going back to imagery that King David himself used in Psalm chapter 4, verse 7. And in Psalm chapter 4, verse 7, he says this. King David says, You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to consume alcohol. I know different Christians have different ideas about that. Friends, there's no command in the Bible that prohibits people drinking. It is a sin to get drunk, though. But King David says, look, if you're looking for joy, you're not going to find it in alcohol. You're going to find it in Christ and God. And you've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and their wine abound, than whatever they feel like they're getting when they get drunk. You've put more joy in my heart, oh God. So what Paul is doing here for us is using drunkenness as a platform to show us something even bigger, more important, that can change our lives. It can give us the help we need. Friends, in Ephesians chapter 5, we saw it just a few weeks ago in verse 16, we were told that the days are evil. Friends, as we seek to live for Christ in evil days, it is tough. As we seek to remember our identity in Christ in evil days, it is tough. We're seeing chapter 6 in the weeks to come. Not only is it tough because the days are evil, but there's a very real enemy who opposes us at every turn. So we have evil days tempting us. We have a very real enemy that we'll see is attacking us, and it is hard to live for Christ in all of this. Where do we find help to do this? And it's not an escape. The help we need to to live out in these evil days is not to escape from the pain, escape from the struggle, escape from the problems by getting drunk. It is to seek help that can only come from knowing God. And so, again, everything in the first part of verse 18 is true. It's a command that we should not get drunk. But if that's where we stop, we miss what Paul's trying to do. And he's trying to set us up for something even bigger and more life-changing than, well, I just don't get drunk. There's something huge here for us in the second half of the verse. And that is the strength to live out our identity in Christ. In these evil days where there's so much sadness and hurt and pain, we can do it, though, because of the strength that comes from the Holy Spirit. So with that said, let's go back to those three questions I think that this verse is really all about. What is my identity? Who is the Holy Spirit who helps me live out that identity? And then how does he help me. So first of all, what is our identity? We've seen this all throughout Ephesians, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. If you think back to Ephesians chapter 1, our identity has been given to us in so many descriptions. We've been told we're chosen, we're predestined, we're adopted. This is an identity of belonging to God. 
We've been told we're forgiven and we're redeemed. It's an identity that comes in being loved by God. We're told we're already viewed by God as holy, that when he looks at us, he didn't see your sin of yesterday. He sees Christ. You already are viewed as holy by God, and so you can approach him. It's an identity that is receiving every spiritual blessing from the Lord, of having an inheritance given to you. The terminology of Ephesians is so rich of all that God has done for it. It's an identity that we belong to God and are loved by him. But it's an identity that you and I cannot create. There's nothing you or I can do to make God love us or to even decide that God's going to love us. We can't make that happen. It's an identity that's God's grace gift to us. But then after telling us, after God says, I already see you this way, he gives us several commands. He says, now I want you to live it out. I already see you as holy, so go act holy. I already see you as light, go be light. And he begins to command us these things. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, just to remind us of the commands that he's given us. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God sees us in a certain way. He says, now bring it into balance, the axios, the worthy here. Live out now that identity. You see it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 as well. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Not to become beloved children. We don't imitate God so he'll begin to like us. Because God in his grace has given us a new identity. Because God has made us his children. Now we seek to imitate him. Or we saw a few weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 as well. For at one time you were darkness, not just in darkness. Our nature was sinful. Our nature was darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. He took us from darkness. He made us light. Now he says, go walk as children of light. He tells us all these commands. Walk worthy. Be light. Imitate God. And friends, the reality is we can't on our own. You and I both have tried in our own strength at times to imitate God. We've tried in our own strength to be light. We've tried in our own strength to walk worthy, and we fall flat on our face every time we try in our own strength. So what is the hope for us who already are children of God? What is the hope for us who are light now? How do we have hope to walk worthy? Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, here's the hope, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The hope for us is the Holy Spirit doing what we cannot do, that is enabling us to walk worthy, enabling us to be light, enabling us to imitate God. So who is this Holy Spirit who enables us to live out the identity that we could not do? We talked about this back in May. But if you think about May, I barely remember what happened in May. That was a long time ago. So quick review of what we talked about in May. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not some imaginary thing. The Holy Spirit is God. Just as much as the Father is God, just as much as Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's only one God, but he's three persons, three in one, one in three. This mystery we call the Trinity that the Bible reveals to us and we accept in faith. Our little finite minds have a hard time explaining how there can be one God and three persons, and three persons equaling one God. But we know it's true because the Word of God tells us it's true, and we accept it in faith. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the one God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. He has all the attributes of God. It's not like the Father has some attributes, and Jesus has some attributes, and the Holy Spirit has some. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all have all the attributes of God all the time. That means the Holy Spirit is merciful. But the Holy Spirit is wrathful. The Holy Spirit is just, and the Holy Spirit is gracious. The Holy Spirit is loving, and the Holy Spirit is not in need of anything. You get through all the characteristics of God, and anything that could be described to the Father and the Son is true of the Holy Spirit because He is God. He not only is fully God, the Holy Spirit feels. 
fills, experiences things. He grieves, he rejoices, he longs, he yearns over things. He has emotions, he fills things. He also is powerful because he's God. He acts, he moves, he draws people, he convicts, he encourages. And friends, he is able to help. The Holy Spirit is God. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, is all-powerful and everywhere and able to help us in our time of need. I love how Jesus described it in John chapter 15, verse 26. Way back about a year and a half ago at our study of John. And notice what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, the Helper is a title for the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's the one who's all-powerful to help in our time of need. John chapter 16, verse 7 as well. Jesus says, tells his disciples as he's telling them he's going away. He's going back to heaven, and they're not real keen on this idea of, no, Jesus, you, you can't leave us. What are we going to do? Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. They must be thinking, wait, wait, Jesus is crazy. There's no way it's better off for us as his disciples for Jesus to leave us. He says, no, no, but if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. So realize the Holy Spirit is all-powerful. He is God. He has all the attributes of God, and he has been sent by Jesus to be our helper, to help us, to give us strength to do what we could not do. So how does he help us, friends? We think of all the commands of Ephesians to put, on, to put off all the bitterness, the lying, the laziness, the impure thoughts, the yelling, all those things, and all the commands to put on truth-telling and encouragement and hard work and building people up. How does the Holy Spirit practically help us do these things? Two ways this morning I want you to see of how the Holy Spirit helps us. Number one, he fills us with his very presence. He doesn't just work on us from the outside. The Holy Spirit literally fills us with his very presence presence. Look back at verse 18, the last part of it again. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean for him to fill us? I want to clarify here. Him filling us is different than him sealing us. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Everyone who becomes a follower of Christ has the presence of the Holy Spirit at that moment within them, and he will never leave. It happens at salvation that we're sealed. The Holy Spirit begins to dwell within us. He comes in us. He always remains. He never leaves. He gives us security of our salvation. He gives us conviction of our sin. He gives us direction. All that is included in him sealing us. Here it says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filling is different. Believers, followers of Christ, even though they're sealed, even though they have the Holy Spirit, may or may not at any given point be filled with the Holy Spirit because this has to do with control. Remember the contrast Paul's setting up for us. If you consume alcohol, you lose control. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, he is controlling you. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means we are surrendering to his control of our lives. We are allowing the Holy Spirit to direct us, to guide us, to lead us in what we're doing. And I think Paul has that in mind here. The word that is translated to be filled is a Greek word, plero. It's a word that wasn't unique to Paul. You know, sometimes you'll hear me say, this word doesn't appear anywhere else. Paul made it up, it seems like. You know, this is not one of those. Paul takes a really common word in the culture to explain what the Holy Spirit does to us. He, plero, he, he fills us. This word was used in three ways in the Greek culture time. First of all, it was used in sailing. If a person was in a boat and they raised their sails, the wind plero, the wind filled the sails, and that pushed the boat along. I think Paul's trying to give us an image here. The wind fills the sails, which pushes the boat along. The word plero, to be filled, was used in the meat markets. If you were in Ephesus and you went to go buy meat in the market, 
you would go and they would have put salt in the meat. And the salt would have plerowed, would have filled the meat. At the time, there wasn't refrigeration. So the salt plerowing, filling the meat, preserved the meat. It had a flavor to the meat. So all the meat picked up the flavor of what filled it, of the salt filling it. The word was also used in general conversations to mean someone was controlled by something. So if someone had consumed too much alcohol, they were plerowed. They were being controlled by the alcohol within them. And so I think Paul's taking this very common word to help us get the image in our mind. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that means he's the one who's controlling us. Just as alcohol may control a person's thoughts and actions, if the Holy Spirit fills us, he begins to take control of our thoughts and our actions and our words and what we do. If the Holy Spirit fills us, he flavors us like salt flavoring, plattering the meat. The Holy Spirit flavors us. He changes us. Our whole lives begin to reflect more of imitating God because of his presence Within us, he also preserves us, like salt preserves the meat. But also, like the wind, I love the image particularly, the wind filling the cells. The Holy Spirit guides us. He pushes us along. He gives the strength we have to move us when we ourselves could not move. So, friends, when we're called by God to live out our identity, to walk worthy, to live as his children, to be light, and we realize we cannot do that on our own, God says, yeah, you can't do it on my own. I'm going to plare you. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit who will give you strength to obey when you don't think you can obey. He will give you love when you don't think you can love. He will help you rejoice even when it's a situation you don't think you can rejoice in. He will help you serve even those you don't want to serve. He will give you joy even if it's a suffering. Why? Because he literally takes control. When the Holy Spirit fills us, he's taking control of our lives and pushing us along, preserving us, controlling us, changing us so that we do what God calls us to do. There's lots of places in Scripture we can look to give examples of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit fills, controls a person. I'm going to give you just two today, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. I want you to go to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6. There was a guy named Zerubbabel. It's not a fun name. I don't know when names are kids that anymore, but that's a fun name. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a governor at the time, and Joshua was the high priest. And Zerubbabel and Joshua have been tasked with something almost impossible, go rebuild the temple. There's no small feat right there. And God reminds us that no conventional strategy plan will work to rebuild the temple. So what is their hope when God has tasked them with doing something that they could not do on their own? What's the hope? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you've been tasked and you're not a follower of Christ with rebuilding a temple, if you're not a follower of God at the time and you're told to rebuild a temple... You go, well, I've got to have a lot of might, a lot of power, and a lot of men, a lot of strategy. And God says, nope, you don't need all that. You need my Holy Spirit to accomplish what no strategy of yours will enable you to accomplish. When the Holy Spirit fills us, he gives us strength to do what we could not do otherwise. But there's so many places we go look in the New Testament. I want you to see one. That's Acts chapter 6. There's a man named Stephen in the book of Acts. When the apostles were had more to do than they could do, and they set apart the first group of men to serve and meet the needs of the body. Many believe are the first deacons here. One of those was a guy named Stephen. And notice what it said about him. What they said, that's the apostles, what the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, you're already sealed, you already have the Holy Spirit, but he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit guiding him, pushing him along, flavoring his life, controlling him, changing him because of his presence, because he's yielding himself to the direction of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 give us the first glimpse of that. And the word of God continued to increase. 
And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Then in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What happened? Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was controlling him. And through his witness, even priests who opposed the Christians were coming to faith in Christ. Not because of any power or strength in him, but because the Holy Spirit was filling him and, and moving him along to do what would not, normally not make sense. A follower of Christ to go talk to a Jewish priest to share with them and challenge them with the gospel. You see more of what it looked like for Stephen to be filled, verses 9 and 10, as well, of Acts chapter 6. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, they rose up, and they disputed, they argued with Stephen. So what verse 10 shows us about what happens when skeptics confront him. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was so full of the Holy Spirit that even when people were arguing with him, trying to put him down and trying to, to destroy what he believed, they couldn't withstand his wisdom. Not because it was his strength, but because the Holy Spirit was controlling him, was filling him, and was giving him strength to do what he could not do. And that was to try to persuade these people. Acts chapter 6, verse 15 as well, we see a glimpse of it. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. This is the council that's getting ready to put Stephen to death. He's about to face a, he's facing a death sentence. And the people looking on, the, the man they're condemning, said he looked like an angel. He had so much peace because of the strength that came from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. Stephen is now being executed. He's literally being stoned to death in an excruciating way for his faith. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in verse 60, and falling to his knees, he, he's dying here. So picture a man bloodied and dying stones. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. He said as he fell asleep. You see a glimpse of when someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, the strength they have to do, which makes no sense from any other perspective. How could Stephen love and seek the forgiveness of those who were killing him? How could he have the face of an angel amidst the opposition? How could he have wisdom to reason with the people who hated him? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He found strength to obey what Christ commanded And it was not a strength that came from him. Friends, the strength to live out identity in Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. Two ways. First, as he fills us with his presence. That's the first glimpse we have. He fills us with his presence. But there's a second thing the Holy Spirit does that strengthens us. And that is the Holy Spirit gives us understanding of God's word. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding of God's word. Go back to verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you're thinking, Grady, I don't see anything in this verse about the Holy Spirit showing us God's Word. I'm glad you're looking if you're thinking that. But it's there, but not in the way that we might expect. What's going to follow in the next few weeks? We're going to look at what are the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, 19, 20, and 21 gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what that looks like. So Aaron, go ahead and put that graphic up on the screen for us. I don't know if you can see this well, but if you look at 19, 20, and 21 that follows down the left column, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Don't worry, we're going to get to those in the next two to three weeks. We're going to talk about what that looks like when the Holy Spirit controls us. But notice on the right, Paul also wrote a letter to the people at Colossae. And in this letter, it was written about the same time as a letter to the people in Ephesus. It was delivered by the same guy. So he's written two letters about the same time. He says something very similar, though. So start with the second line up there. Ephesians 5 says we're to be addressing one another. Colossians 3 says we're to be admonishing one another. Ephesians 5, we're told we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, we're to do so with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Ephesians 5, we're told to give thanks always and for everything to God. Colossians 3, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see he's saying basically the exact same thing line by line by line? You can see this guy writing to a church at Colossae and a church in Ephesus going, what's so important? What does this look like to follow Christ? Well, we talk to one another. We do so with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs where we give thanks to God. He makes one difference at the very top of the sentence of each of these. Why? Because it's basically the same idea. Because it's the same foundation. Ephesians 5, he describes these things coming from being filled with the Spirit. We, as we're filled with the Spirit, we begin to address one another. We begin to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We begin to give thanks always to God in everything. But also, if the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, we begin to admonish one another. We begin to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. We begin to have thankfulness in our hearts to God. The same exact fruit, if you will, the same exact results come from being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does that happen? Because what does the Holy Spirit do? He fills us and begins to open our eyes to the revelation of God that's already been given to us in the words of Scripture. As the Holy Spirit within us, as He fills us, He begins to give us a longing for the written Word of God. He begins to give us understanding of the written Word of God. He begins to give us conviction of sin that comes when we read the Scriptures and go, I'm not walking worthy, or Lord, I've been yelling at my kids and you've told me to put off all clamor. He begins to give us conviction that comes from the revelation of God. In the Word of God. He begins to give us direction from the Word of God. He begins to give us strength from the Word of God. He begins to apply God's Word to our life, and He will never, ever, ever contradict anything written in the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit helps us in two ways. He fills us with His very presence as He guides us and pushes us and directs us and flavors us, but He also opens our eyes to the riches of the Word of Christ. He begins to, He enables the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Friends, the strength we need to live out our identity in Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. Because He fills us with His presence, He gives us understanding of Scripture. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Because this all has to come from Him. Notice it says, but be filled with the Spirit. Friends, the phrase be filled in the Greek is passive. That means it's something we cannot do. He doesn't say, you go get filled with the Spirit. He says, rather, you be filled. You have to receive something. We cannot fill ourselves. He has to do the work. But there's a little bit of a tension here because it's a passive tense. It has to be done for us, but yet there's a command here. It's an imperative passive. It's an imperative. We're commanded to do something that we cannot do. Feel that tension there in this? There's, and it's a present tense command. That means ongoing, moment by moment, every day, you are commanded by God to do what you can't do, and that's to be filled by Him. So what is our responsibility? If the Holy Spirit has to fill us, and we can't make Him fill us, but we're commanded to be filled by Him moment by moment every day, how in the world does that work? How do we obey a command that God has to do for us? I think it's pretty simple. We have to long for it. We have to ask for it. Our responsibility is to long for it and to ask for it. Friends, the strength to live our identity in Christ in these evil days and with the opposition of the enemy, and with our own flesh not wanting it, the only strength that we have to do this comes from the Holy Spirit as He fills us with His presence, as He illuminates the Word of God to us. He has to do it, but we have to want it, and we have to ask for it. We have to ask for it every day. This is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day filling of His presence in our lives. The strength to live our identity in Christ can only come from the Holy Spirit. So, friends, I want to ask us this morning, first of all, are we daily longing for his presence. Are we daily longing for the Holy Spirit to fill us like the wind fills the sails of a boat to push along? Are we longing in our hearts for the Holy Spirit to be the one who's propelling us, who's pushing us, who's guiding us? 
Are we longing for the Holy Spirit to be like salt-flavoring meat, filling our lives so that not only are we preserved, but so that we are, are able to be all that He wants us to be, so we can imitate God as He fills us, as He salts us, as He flavors us, as we begin to more and more imitate God? Are we longing for Him to do that? And back to the alcohol imagery, are we wanting Him to control us? Are we wanting Him to, to take control and, and take control of our thoughts and change our thoughts, our words, our actions to be what God wants them to be? Or are we looking to something else to control us? What do we long to control us? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it something else in the world? With that said, friends, then you need to ask, are we daily asking Him to fill us? Friends, this is a command from Scripture. Be filled with the Spirit. If we don't obey this command, we're going to probably not obey any of the other commands of Scripture. Because if we don't have the Holy Spirit filling us, then we're not going to find strength, and we're going to fall flat on our face in all of these other commands. Are we daily asking Him to, Holy Spirit, today fill me? Would you today take control of me? Again, not that we're inviting Him into our lives. He's already there. If we, when we come to faith in Christ, He seals us. His presence is there. But are we yielding control and asking Him, Holy Spirit, would you fill me today? Would you control me today? Would you take control of my mind that wanders to things that shouldn't? Would you take control of my words that are so quick to put down? Would you take control of my actions that want to run towards simple things? God, would you today... Fill me in such a way that I'm controlled by you to do what I cannot do, and that's to walk in holiness. And then, friends, with that, remember, one of the ways the Holy Spirit changes us is he opens up God's word to us. So, friends, are we opening up the word of God each day, expectantly, prayerfully, saying, Holy Spirit, these are your words. Let them come alive today. Holy Spirit, these are your words. Would you show me how they apply to my life? Would you convict me of sin? Would you encourage me where I need encouragement? Holy Spirit... Let the word of God come alive in my life today. Friends, are we longing for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us? Are we asking him to fill us and strengthen us? And are we opening God's word expectantly, waiting for him to move through the word of God to strengthen us so that we can live out our identity as those belonging to God? Friends, as we come to communion this morning, I hope you'll think about those questions. They're very fitting questions. We celebrate how we even can do these things. Do you know communion first started out as Passover? A Jewish celebration where the Jews celebrated God delivering them from physical slavery. And it took a very powerful symbol of each family killing an innocent lamb and putting blood on their doorposts so the death angel passed over their house so they could be preserved and escape their slavery. If you know, Jesus took that, though, and he added to it. He took the imagery of it to show us that he is a sacrifice, not just from physical slavery to sin, but from spiritual slavery to sin. That all of us are... As we saw in Ephesians 5 already, we are not just in darkness, we are darkness. That's why the Bible says we're slaves to our sins. So Jesus takes this Passover celebration and he turns it to us to help us realize how we can be delivered from our sins. How we could even be at a place to know God so that we could even have a desire to walk worthy. A place to where the Holy Spirit could come and not just at a distance operating our lives, but to literally come and to fill us with his presence, to seal us. How is all that possible? It was going to take a sacrifice. So we come to communion with a sense of celebration. This sacrifice of Christ that we celebrate is what enables you and I to have the sealing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we ask for it. It would not happen apart from Christ's sacrifice for us. So it's a time for us to celebrate if you're a child of God. And it's also a time for serious examination. Did you see 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28? We read it often when we come to communion. It says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're called, we're commanded before we take communion that we're to examine ourselves. What, what are we supposed to examine ourselves on? 
Well, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 gives us a little glimpse of one of the things that we're supposed to examine ourselves. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. It's the first question for us to ask before we ever come to celebrate communion. Am I a child of God? Do I know he has given me a new identity? Not an identity I've earned or I've worked for, but in his grace and kindness, an identity that he has done what I can do. He's rescued me from my sins. He has invited me to his table. I belong to God because of what Christ did. That's the first thing we're supposed to examine ourselves on. My friends, if you know you're a child of God, you are welcome to come. It doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. If you know you belong to God because of what Christ has done, because your only confidence is in Christ for giving you of your sins, you're welcome to come and to break the bread and take the juice to remember his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. But if you are a believer, I believe communion not only is a time to celebrate, it's a time to examine ourselves as well. If you're a child of God and know that you're in the faith, so to speak, what are you examining yourself for? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, I think is one place we start. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Since Christ didn't die for our sins, his body wasn't broken, his blood wasn't shed so we could remain in our sin. He died to rescue us from the penalty of sin so we don't have to go to hell, yes, but he also rescued us from the power of sin. And so we need to examine ourselves as we receive communion to go, do I long to imitate God? Is he growing me in that? Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. If you're a child of God, as you look at the bread and drink the juice, one of the questions asked is, Lord, am I seeking to walk as a child of light? I know I can't in my own strength, but God, is there a desire in my heart for it? And when I fall, do I have conviction from you because I fall? Because I so want to walk and to live out who you've said that we are. Another thing you can do to examine is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then as you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Lord, what does my life show? Is there fruit in my life? Is there any transformation because I'm your child? As the Holy Spirit convicts us, we repent of it. It's a great time to deal with unconfessed sin in our life. And last one, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is right, but be filled with the Spirit. Friends, I want to challenge us that one of the things that we all should examine ourselves on today before we receive the elements is, Lord, am I longing to be filled with your Holy Spirit? Not, again, if you're a child of God, you're sealed. He's already within you. But are you daily longing to yield control to him, to let him guide you, to let him flavor you, to let him change you? And if we realize there's areas we fall short, that's the beauty of the gospel. Friends, it's not that we're saved by God's grace and then we persevere on our own strength. We're saved by God's grace and we grow by God's grace and we press on by God's grace. Friends, areas where I fall short and you fall short, we run right back to the gospel. And communion is a great time for us to pause, to do what we were commanded in earlier in Ephesians two weeks ago, to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. So I just encourage you, if you're a child of God, you are welcome to come celebrate communion. And as you come and receive the elements, there's no rush to sit back in your seats. Take time to reflect on Christ's body being broken for you, his blood being poured out for you. And to reflect on those things and ask the Lord, Lord, is there any areas in my life where I'm not walking worthy? Lord, am I desiring to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Lord, am I walking as a child of light? Lord, am I wanting to imitate you? And as God brings through his Holy Spirit conviction of sin, don't, don't get crushed. He loves you. He convicts you because he loves you. To use that moment to confess it to him and savor the forgiveness that he gives you because of the sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to pray for us, and then our deacons will come direct us as we receive communion this morning. Father, we thank you for that glorious gospel message, that there's nothing we could do to earn your favor, nothing we could do to get to you in the first place, but Lord, you have come to us when we could never 
get to you. And Lord, I pray this day that you would um, help us to rejoice in you, to just to rejoice in what you've offered for us, how you've forgiven us, how you've changed us, how you are still changing us. And Lord, I pray today as we celebrate communion for everyone who is a child of God, who you've redeemed and rescued, that God, this would be a time of celebration. God, that you would fill our hearts with joy and wonder at how you looked upon undeserving sinners like us and have rescued us. And Lord, from my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters in areas to where our flesh is still clinging to sins and areas where in our own selfishness we're not yielding control to you, God, I pray that even as we celebrate communion today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would begin to change us and convict us and give us the strength we need to begin to live for you. Lord, I pray as we celebrate today, Lord, we will find great joy in who you are and what you've done, and you will receive all the glory for what you're doing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.